Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Better Bible Reading Podcast in our Teaching Thursdays series. I'm excited because this is our second episode of a series that we kicked off two weeks ago about interpretation methods in the Bible. Those two interpretation methods, which are the most commonly used methods, commonly known methods in Christianity, are dispensationalism and covenant theology. Last week, you heard an introduction to dispensationalism and why it is that we should be concerned of different methods of interpreting the Bible, because it turns out everybody does this whether you are aware of it or not. When we open our Bibles, we have a categorical way of thinking. We assess and process the information in the Bible, and we develop an interpretation grid, if you will. You might not realize that you do that, but everybody does that. That's how we process information, and that's how we as readers comprehend what it is that we're reading. So knowing the two main systems that are used to interpret the Bible can really help us tremendously of understanding where we land, what we believe, why we believe it. And so last week, as I introduced dispensational theology to you, I put my cards on the table that I disagree with it as an interpretation method and said that there is a better one. There is one which is called covenant theology. Now, this is a friendly in-house debate. This is not the difference between whether you're a Christian or not, uh, but this is the difference of how you understand the Bible and what impact it has. So today, I'm going to introduce you to the fact that God is a covenantal God. God is a God who deals with his people, introduces himself by way of covenants. And this is the heartbeat of covenant theology as an interpretation method of the Bible. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy. Thanks for listening. All right, good to see everyone. Uh, Last week we started a new uh, kind of teaching series about uh, covenant theology and dispensational theology. And last week was our kind of introduction to all of that. And uh, when we closed, I mentioned three particular parts of dispensational theology uh, that pretty much define what it is. Um, And those three things were, number one, they see a sharp distinction between Israel and the church. Number two, they believe their system is the most comprehensive system of God's glory instead of man's glory. And number three, uh, they see, um, I kind of added in another one, so it's really four, but number three is their consistent literal interpretation of Scripture. And then number four, what I kind of added into that was their overall system being completely defined by their eschatology or their, their doctrine of the last things, how the last things play out. So all of those things together define dispensational theology. And what I would like to do in the coming weeks, starting with this morning, is to just simply take all of those aspects and analyze it from our perspective, which is covenant theology. So we're going to start out by thinking through if, in fact, the church and Israel are two distinct peoples, uh, the way that the dispensationals see that. 
Uh, and the best way that we can do that is to really kind of get at what exactly we mean by covenant theology. So last week was kind of an introduction and what we mean by dispensational theology. This week uh, is going to kind of start us out by defining the terms of what exactly we mean when we say covenant theology. Um, kind of a shorthand way of seeing it as a system would really be right here in our Westminster Confession of Faith. This is a theological grid or system that we see the right way to interpret the, the full scope of the Bible. So obviously it's a big task. It's more than just a text here or there. Um, but in the Westminster Confession of Faith, it is a kind of a definition and, and a theme of covenant theology. And so we'll refer to that a little bit, although most of us have kind of studied through the confession of faith already at one time or another. Uh, but the best way that we can see it, uh, just kind of in a more brief uh, treatment of it this morning, um, I'd like to just start out by having you turn to the first chapter of the book of Romans. And because this is kind of a thematic study, um, as is normal for me in these uh, Sunday school classes, I'll probably have us jumping around a decent amount in the Bible, uh, but I'll try to uh, keep it you know, somewhat limited so you're not having to fly around the place you know, from beginning to end. But Romans chapter 1 is where you can go to start out. And I'll give you just a minute to get there. And while you're getting there, I'll just remind you that uh, when we closed last week, the whole, the whole idea of, of looking at this was the fact that we live in a dispensational culture. So what that means briefly, uh, if some of you weren't here last week, what that means is this theological system of dispensationalism is certainly the absolute majority when it comes to American evangelicalism and American Christianity. So you see it popularized in things like the Left Behind books. Uh, almost every televangelist you see has some kind of like end times emphasis and Israel church distinction. And so because that is not what we uh, adhere to in Presbyterian theology, um, I thought it would be helpful for us to kind of get at this idea because we want to have fruitful and helpful conversations with our brothers and sisters who who don't see things the way that we do. Uh, but we want to understand them rightly. We don't want to have your typical Facebook debate with them, uh, but we want to have helpful and edifying conversations. So the best thing we can do is just kind of look at it and analyze it from a biblical perspective. So to start out with, I think it's so important for us when we throw out that word covenant, covenantal theology, it's so important for us to understand why we use that word uh, quite often, and what exactly it means. And most importantly, it matters that it's biblical or not, doesn't it? It matters that when we think about God, how he is conveyed to us in his word is of absolute importance for us to have an understanding of the idea of covenant. But God is covenantal in his being. What does that mean? Well, I think a good place, you don't have to turn here, but a good place to look at this would be Jesus' conversation, or better yet, Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. One of the things that Jesus kind of unfolds for us and for the disciples who were there was the fact that what he was doing in the redemptive plan was of complete unity and agreement in the persons of the Trinity. So what that, what that means is that the Father was not like twisting 
Christ the Son's arm behind his back and making him do something he didn't want to do. And he also wasn't coming to earth to try to, like, overthrow the Father's plan. So it's kind of typical that people have this idea that the Old Testament is all about God the Father. The New Testament is all about God the Son. God the Son is all about love and grace. God the Father is all about wrath. So God the Son comes to stop the Father and his wrath and just say all they need is love. And, you know, kind of this weird dichotomy that's not biblical because in John 17, the idea of redemptive history, the plan of redemption for man is absolutely agreed upon through the Father, Son, and obviously in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit coming to the believers. So you have all three persons of the Trinity participating in complete unity and agreement. We might, we might say that they are covenantal in that idea because they're working for the, the, the purpose, the unity, the, the one goal, in other words, in each person of the Trinity. So God has one plan, and in his being, he is in complete agreement at all times and in all places. And that's completely uh, of necessity that we understand that right at, right at the outset. Um, and then also, it's just by way of a little bit of a side note, um, the gospel or salvation is completely one unified work And the best way that that's expressed is that when the gospel comes forth and salvation happens, it's eternal salvation. We talked about that several weeks back when we were thinking about Christ as the high priest, how the sacrifice is for all time. It's eternal. So when we get the benefit of salvation, it's an everlasting salvation, an eternal salvation. And in in a way, that's really the fullest expression of God and his work. Because after all, God is eternal in nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There never was a time when any of those weren't. God is eternal, and His work in salvation is eternal. So our eternal life, our gospel given to us, is the fullest expression of God in that covenantal agreement of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That will be more evident as we move, but I just wanted to mention that as kind of to set the stage for uh, what we're getting at. And then lastly, when we think about redemption and salvation, I think it's important that we understand also that the work of salvation is an eternal thing to be celebrated. So in dispensational theology, at least when it comes to the work of God in the church, remember I said that the way that they kind of understand it is that Israel is the big play. And you have the play and then the curtains, you know, Close, and then there's that intermission period. And that intermission period is kind of when the church as a distinct entity is doing its thing and God's doing his plan and he kind of puts Israel to the back burner. And then the intermission's over and the curtains open back up and it's back to Israel again. And that's kind of a dispensational view of things. But when we turn to the book of Revelation, the celebration and the singing that happens is all about Christ's work for the church. It's what's sung about and celebrated for all eternity. So it's very, I think, a a fatal error for us to understand God's work in the church as parenthetical, as this little parenthesis in, in history. Because after all, why would we sing about a little moment in history that doesn't really matter in the full scheme of things unless it was the focal point of history? And so when we think about covenant... 
and the way that that works. When we look at Romans 1, there's a few things that we do uh, notice. And of course, for us, we've been uh, studying through this as Pastor Jesse's been preaching through Romans here lately. Um, But I wanted to just kind of touch on a few things in this first chapter. So whenever Paul unfolds into his treatment of God's wrath and how society crumbles in immorality and all of the things that go with rejecting God, there's a few uh, keys that he gives us to understand God's relationship with mankind. And when we start in in, uh, verse 18 of chapter 1, he says some very important things. Let me just read to you. Verses 18 through 21. Here's what it says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature... Have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, when we read that, there's a lot of phrases there that speak to the fact, quite simply, that God communicates himself to us. You see that in the fact that the unrighteous, the unrighteous ones suppress the truth. What can be known about God is plain to them. Why is that? Because God has shown it to them. And then especially verse 20, God in his eternal power and divine nature, his attributes are clearly perceived in the creative order. And all of that speaks to God's condescension, God condescending to us in order to communicate himself to us. And that's not just a Christian thing, that's a universal reality of all of mankind in the fact that there is a God. There is a God. And this speaks to the fact that God not only condescends, but he communicates himself. This is In this passage, this is what we would call natural revelation. It's not revelation that we understand there is a God, so we're saved. That would be the special revelation given to us in Scripture. But it's the fact that all of us on our hearts understand that there is a God. It's not a matter of if we know that. It's a matter of if we suppress it or not. But in all of that, it speaks to the fact that God in his mercy has a covenant with us. Now that may seem like a stretch just by looking at Romans 1, but in Romans 1, it's not so much whether or not there is a covenant as much as the fact of how it's communicated. So if you think about it, if God did absolutely nothing to show himself to us, we would never know him. In fact, it would be impossible. I may go so far as to say that. It may be impossible For there to even be such a thing as life and existence if God communicated absolutely nothing about himself to us. Because in the creative order, it's evident that there is a God. There would be no such thing as creation without following that there's also this showing of who God is to us. And that's the way that he communicates 
with all creation. But to see that, I'd like to have us turn back to Genesis chapter 2. Because in Genesis chapter 2, we're moving from the how of God having a covenant with man in Romans 1. To the sole explanation of it in Genesis chapter 2. So it's an interesting thing when we read through Genesis 1, because of course we have the work of creation, the establishment of the heavens and the earth, the six days of God's work, and then the seventh day of rest. And it's interesting to me because when we move from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2, when it starts to communicate us to us about God. So let me just back up for a second. So in Genesis 1, you have the days of creation. Then you move to Genesis 2, and it kind of moves from an aerial view of things to a ground-level view of things. When you get to especially verse 4 of chapter 2, it starts to have a, an in-depth treatment of how God dealt with mankind. Of course, you have uh, God speaking to Adam and Eve and then giving the covenant, giving the agreement, giving the command. And it's interesting because if you notice, once we move to verse 4, the Bible stops referring to God as simply God and begins to refer to him as the Lord God. Now, what's interesting and very important for us to understand about that is the fact that in the Bible, that word, the Lord, normally in all caps in your Bible, is the covenantal name of God. And you see it with when God speaks to uh, Moses. You see it really all throughout the Old Testament from this point forward. But in that name, Yahweh, the Lord, uh, the I am who I am, it's that communication of a covenantal God making his way into our lives and speaking to us and communing with us. And so the Bible is really careful here in that second chapter to start referring to the Lord in that way because we're working towards God uh, speaking to Adam and Eve and giving a command. And so whenever we get to this part, he gives the command. Uh, we move down to verse 23. I'm sorry, not 23. 15. Sorry about that. Here's what it says in Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. This is a covenant that God makes with man, and not only with Adam singularly, but with all of mankind by way of descendant and posterity. And we see that especially in the New Testament when it unpacks the fact that because Adam sinned, Adam fell in sin, we also share in that reality of sin and the curse of the fall. So in this, God makes a covenant with him right at the outset of how life is to be lived. And alongside this is also the command for mankind to have dominion over the creative order. And so when we think about this, it's important to realize that although 
the first thing that God says, at least recorded here with man, is a command. It's important that we realize that the whole fact that God even speaks and communicates and wants to have relationship with man is a reality of grace. Now, what we call that in the day-in, day-out way that we live is common grace. So, whether you're a believer or not, you can enjoy the wonderful taste of food. Whether you're a believer or not, you can enjoy the pleasure of intimacy. Whether you're a believer or not, you can breathe, enjoy fresh air, view the scenery, view God's creation. And in all of that, God communicates a special, what we would call, common grace to all of mankind. So in God's work with man from the very beginning, before we even get into salvation and all those kind of things, it's an act of grace and a relationship of grace. But in all of this, I think it's so important for us to understand that this is really where things start to kind of split off when it comes to how we understand what we call covenant theology and how dispensationals would say there's dispensational theology uh, happening here. Because when we look at this, we can see the reality of Adam from this moment until the fall in chapter 3 that this reality continues to play out all throughout history until Christ comes. Because after all, in the New Testament, Christ is the second Adam. And the reality of what he does has great effect on our lives. But in dispensational theology, if you remember me talking about how there's normally seven dispensations, seven distinct moments in time where God deals with man this way and then this way and then this way, that there's a break-off here because after the fall, dispensational theology, although they would certainly recognize that we're in a fallen world from this point on, that this is kind of a special moment just for Adam to where whenever it moves to his descendants, then there's a different thing happening. And then when the time of Noah happens, there's a different thing happening. But really, we see things in covenant theology in this reality There's two covenants and two covenants only. Now, of course, when you read the Old Testament, there are other covenants, right? There's the covenant that God makes with Abraham. There's the covenant God makes with David and all throughout the the Old Testament. But all of those fall under the banner of two different covenants, either the covenant of works, which is what this is, or the covenant of grace. And I would like to just read this from our confession. Uh, You probably have heard it already, um, but since it might have been a little while, I'll read it. This is from chapter 7 of the Westminster Confession, and here's what it says. We've touched on some of this already, but I'll read it to you here. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to Him as their Creator, yet they could never have any fruition of Him as their blessedness and reward but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath pleased to express by way of covenant. Now, we've already covered that, right? We've already covered the fact that God communicates himself to us. And then here's what it says. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works. Now, that's not to say that there was no grace involved with it. Wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. And then, of course, when the fall of man comes, this is what happens. Man, by his fall, 
Having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offers to sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. So just brief analysis of that. Two covenants. In Adam, there's the covenant of works promised, which is here. Don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's a a grave uh, reality if you do. That is, if you eat it, you will surely die. Of course, what happens? He eats of it. And in that, the curse upon mankind... But even in the curse, we've looked at this for almost every week that I've been up here for the past month in some way or another. But I'm going to read it again in Genesis 3.15. Even while the Lord is in the midst of making the curse upon mankind, he gives a promise to mankind in this same time. And here's what he says in Genesis 3.15. Speaking to the serpent here. I will put enmity between you and the woman... And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That last part, the bruising or the crushing of the head of the serpent is what God promises to happen to reverse the effects and the reality of the fall of mankind. In the New Testament, it is absolutely clear That Jesus Christ is the promised one who is going to come and crush the head of the serpent. Now, what's so important for us to understand here, all there is is Adam and Eve. There are no nations. There are no distinct people groups. There is mankind universally represented here. And God gives one remedy, one reality of hope and salvation, and that is in the crushing of the serpent. There is no nations here. I just want to put that out again, because what God is saying is that there is one of two realities here. Either the offspring that is found in the one who crushes the head of the serpent or the offspring of the serpent himself. That's what John says in 1 John, right? Either a child of the devil or a child of God. There's no third family to belong to. It ultimately consolidates in whether we belong to Christ or not. It ultimately consolidates of whether we are found to be in this promise or not. So if this is the only reality represented here for mankind... We can see at this early on, it would be unwise for us to move through history and start dealing with all kinds of distinctions that God works with this people group this way and this one this way and this one this way because it all terminates on Christ crushing the head of the serpent and whether we're found in that or not. That's so important for us to understand. But if I can show you how this correlation is made, if you will, please turn to Romans chapter 5. And many of you will be very familiar with this. But this is what Paul says. 
which is important to note because the Roman church was made up of both Jews and Gentiles. So if there was ever a time for two different plans to be described, it would be here. But this is what Paul says in Romans 5. I'll read for you here in verse 12. Romans 5, verse 12. Here's what it says. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come, that one being Christ. And here's what it says if I continue along here. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's Trespass, death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. I could go on, but I think that really sufficiently shows what we've said so far. The fact that there are two realities for mankind. We're either in the covenant of works where the curse of the fall is expressed. That would be us outside of Christ. The reality of mankind outside of Christ. Or we are in that gracious covenant. What he says here. That it is the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Jesus, the second Adam. So we are either in the first man, the first Adam. In that covenant of works where the curse upon man is found. Or we are in the promise of the covenant of grace that God made, which is expressed through Jesus Christ and his work. Now, again, those are the only two realities there are. Everything else that's in the Bible falls in one of those two categories. But all of them, especially the way that we talked about Jesus as prophet, priest, and king, all of those other covenants, whether it's the Mosaic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, or the covenant God makes with David, speaking of the reign of the king, all of those things are consolidated in Jesus Christ fulfilling those, which we looked at uh, in these past several weeks. So again, even though there are things happening, certainly different things happening throughout the Old Testament, we don't want to say that those different things happening are different purposes or different plans or different methods that God's using. It's not like he works from a plan A to plan B to plan C and then all the way finally to that one plan that finally works. In Jesus Christ, but it's all pointing towards him in the covenants that God makes throughout the Old Testament because they're fulfilled in Jesus Christ as the prophet, priest, and king for us. And so there are two covenants, and in these two covenants, 
even the fact that the old way is the reality of our works, which is the covenant of works, the curse for us, is expressed in Romans 6, 23. Here's another one of those uh, Bible memory verses for you uh, who've grown up in that kind of context. Romans 6, does anybody have it memorized by chance? Say it if you know it. You get 50 points. Good job. <laughs> but what does that say? It speaks of two realities. The wages of sin. You receive your wages for your work. If you're, if you're in that covenant of works, what you get is death because you are outside of the righteousness of Christ. But the reality of grace is a free gift. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, those are the only two realities of mankind, irrespective of race, irrespective of nationality. It is mankind in one destiny or the other, and that's it. And like we saw in Genesis 3.15, that curse comes with a promise, of course. But why is this pertinent for us? Why does it matter? Why are we kind of looking at all of this with a fine-tooth comb? Well, it'll be more evident when we move through the rest of what dispensational theology would say. But what I've just explained to you is a very, very simplified way of, co- of the covenant of grace and the covenant of works in covenant theology. If I can just say it one more time so that we can get it. Two realities for mankind in Christ, outside of Christ. Covenant of works outside of Christ, covenant of grace in Christ. Child of the devil outside of Christ, child of God in Christ. That's it. Okay? I, wanna, I, wanna, I just want to say that again and again because it will certainly matter as we move through this. <clears throat> but the fact that dispensational theology sees God's work with the church as being basically... The Gentile representation of believers would be how dispensational theology sees the church. The church is a distinct group, which would basically be all the other nations besides Israel, the nation. And, of course, there's a few Israelites trickled in there because Paul and Peter were Israelites. But there they are in the church. But that's a whole other story. But they see them in there as God's individual plan outside of what he's doing with Israel. And that matters because Jesus, at the end of his ministry, gives the very famous commission to the church. Which, what do we call that? It's not a trick question. What commission does Jesus give to the church? The Great Commission. That's all. I was just looking for, for uh, an emphasis of the commission, that it's great. Now, what, is, what does Jesus say in, in Matthew 28? Well, he gives a command... He commits the church to their marching orders, to their work. Very end of the Gospel of Matthew, we'll start in verse 18, Matthew 28. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So notice, universal Authority, not just on earth, but in heaven. And not just 
in heaven and waiting on the earth part, but both of them. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, because I have all authority, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them, who is them, all nations, to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, Jesus had a really important opportunity here to give two different plans, if in fact there are two different plans. Jesus could have said, go and make disciples of all nations except for the nation of Israel. I'm doing something different with them later. And he even says this to Israelites, the 11 disciples. And Jesus gives this command as the one thing to be involved with, making disciples of all nations. And that all is just again and again poured out in there. All authority, make disciples of all nations, teach them all I've commanded. So this universal reality of mankind, fully encompassed, all, all, all. There it is. And Jesus gives the command that it is that we should be disciples of Christ. That purpose and promise realized in being a disciple of Christ, a child of God. It would have been a perfect opportunity for Jesus to say that there were two different plans in place. But he doesn't say that. Even in the book of Acts, you don't have to turn here, but even in the book of Acts, right before Jesus ascends into heaven, the disciples ask a question that is completely focused on Israel. In the very beginning of the book of Acts, in verse 6, right before Jesus ascends, they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he says, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses What kinds of witnesses? Witnesses to make disciples of all nations. In Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So again, what God has in place in his plan is disciples of all nations, including Israelites, including ethnic Jews. Now, it's so important that we understand that because in this new kind of dispensational Theology that's kind of immersed, uh, emerged, that is, in the 20th century, especially in America. Uh, I talked about this last week, but I'll just mention it that probably, uh, let's see, probably the most world renowned guy nowadays who doesn't do a whole lot of televangelism anymore. But uh, how many of you uh, remember John Hagee? Or Haggy, or I don't know how you, how you say it, but yeah. 
Um, he's very much into this, um, so much so that he prides himself in seeing the gospel and seeing the church that the only goal that we have is really the conversion of Gentiles, not of Jews. It's, it's a weird thing because it's, there's this push, and this is maybe the more extreme side of it, but there's this push that Jews shouldn't be converted. We shouldn't push for that because all we want to do is make sure that they're safe and sound in their land and none of that gets given up to anybody because we just want to basically pres- preserve them in a bowl, if you will, until that tribulation and rapture and everything happens so that God can do his thing with them. And so he kind of prides himself on not proselytizing the Jews. We don't, want to con- we don't want to convert them. There's a different program in place for them. But even when the disciples asked Jesus a pointed question about Israel, Jesus reaffirmed the Great Commission to also include the Jewish area. There was never an idea of don't convert them. There's a completely different thing happening here. That was never emphasized or even hinted at in what Jesus gave command to. Nor is it in in the New Testament throughout. In fact, um, I'd like to show you uh, yet another thing here. Um, The fact that, well, I'll go ahead and have you turn there first. Uh, Colossians chapter 2. And this touches on what we've already said. So, of course, when you read Genesis 3.15, one of the important things to do is to look at that as it's traced throughout the New Testament. Because, of course, what the Lord says is true, that the serpent's head will be crushed. But in that moment of time, the way that that was going to take place wasn't necessarily fully evident to Adam and Eve. I mean, of course, they believed the Lord, but they didn't see the whole plan in place. They didn't know exactly how it would play out. And The book of Colossians gives, uh, I think, uh, a helpful way to really understand the Old Testament truths and the New Testament reality of those truths. So here's how Paul says it uh, in Colossians 2, verse 17. I'll, I'll read 16 as well. How about that? Colossians 2, 16 and 17 says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. In questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Those would be things related to the Old Testament. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So if we could say it this way, I think Augustine said it well when he said, The Old Testament is the new concealed The New Testament is the old revealed. It's a very consolidated way to say what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Or to say it another way, that what is happening in Genesis 3.15 in the promise is kind of the kernel. It's kind of just the seed. And when we get to the New Testament, it's the reality made to full bloom, to full growth. You can see everything of it. And it's no less a truth. It's no less a promise when you have the seed of the plant versus the whole plant itself. But the whole plant gives greater volume and emphasis to what the seed 
was representing and promising. And that's how it works with Christ in the relationship of what is happening in the Old Testament and the New Testament, which would also include the reality of salvation, the, the history of redemption, if we could put it that way. Because redemption is a history. The Lord is unfolding revelation to us all throughout the Bible, speaking of what is to come, foreshadowing what is to come, promising what is to come. And then Christ comes as the fulfillment, as the final reality of those things, of all of those things realized and alive and true. You can turn another place to see this in Galatians chapter 4. Again, this speaks of one of two realities for mankind. I want you to realize the emphasis that Paul gives here. When he speaks of Christ coming, he calls it the fullness of time. And what that means is, in redemptive history, there's not another moment of redemption that's happening later. There's not another reality that's going to happen later. There's not a different program of salvation that's going to happen later. It's the fullness of time that Christ comes. And what does he do? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And yet again, if I may just kind of jump a little ahead here with what we're going to look at next week. If the reality of our salvation is celebrated as adoption What good is it to call us adopted if the church is a distinct people group from God's true people, Israel? It almost collapses the the emphasis or even any kind of celebration that we've been adopted as sons. If that's just, you know, kind of spiritually speaking, not not really as your identity, but just, you know, how God treats you. That's all. Uh, One final verse to give all of you is Ephesians 1 which is probably on the very next page if you're on Galatians 6, Ephesians 1. This is what it says Christ is doing and has done. Verses 9 and 10. I think this is Paul's thesis statement of the book of Ephesians. He says, In verse 9 of chapter 1, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. And notice the singularity of all of these. The mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of there's that there's that phrase again, the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. Now, next week, what we're going to do, this again, this was kind of a foundational uh, analysis of covenant theology, which is simplified by saying there's two realities for mankind in Christ or outside of Christ, period. Next week, we're going to hopefully... uh, come to a uh, resolution of why dispensationals see uh, the nitty-gritty, see the church in Israel as two different peoples. And uh, my goal is to show you biblically how there is no such distinction, and we can even see how in the Old Testament to the New Testament it is 
God's church, God's people, period. In Christ or outside of Christ. In the Old Testament, looking to the promise to come, looking to Jesus coming, Jesus coming as the centerpiece of human history and redemption, and for those of us who live after that, looking back to the fact that Christ has indeed come. That's how the New Testament sets up that structure. But to close us out, let me read Acts 17.30 to you. Uh, Many of you have read this already. But to just show you yet one more element of the fact that this particular age that we're in between Christ's first and second coming, there is an emphasis of one thing that we're told for all of mankind. And this is what Paul says in verse 30 of Acts chapter 17. In Acts 17.30, Paul says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Now again, this is a universal charge in scope. All people groups are included in this. We're to make disciples of all nations. We're to go and preach the gospel to everyone, all nations. There's no distinction being made because there's an emphasis that all must repent because there's a day of judgment coming for all. Now, I haven't even began to actually touch on the verses that dispensational theology would look to because this isn't a theology invented out of thin air. I mean... Certainly, for a system to develop and gain traction, there has to be at least some, some way that it looks like it, it lines up with Scripture. Uh, so there are, I don't want to just act like I've just now solved all of the arguments or anything like that. Uh, because this was only to give us the covenantal theology foundation so that when we start to look at everything else, we'll have kind of a foundation or a grid to go off of. Um, when we're analyzing and looking at all of this. But next week we'll look at the fact that the church is God's people of all nations, and that's always been the case. And we'll look at the fact that the New Testament sees the church not as the replacement of Israel, but the fulfillment and reality. Of, uh, does anybody have any quick questions before I close out? I don't want to hold this over. Yes, good. Yes. Yes, we are. That'll, that'll be the last thing, fittingly enough. That'll be, we'll look at the last things last. Okay? Because, because dispensational theology takes all of this, gains momentum to get to their view of, of the end times. Um, and once they get there, then they look at the end times and read it back into everything else. But for us, we're going to look at, we're going to start from the starting point here and then, and then get to that. But I, I will say, even in covenant theology, there are different varieties of how one would view the end times or understand the book of Revelation, just as there is in dispensational theology, because like last week I mentioned, there are now so many different varieties of that, uh, with the the classical way of seeing it as almost seeing two different entire ways of salvation to the more progressive or modern dispensational theology, which is, wouldn't go so far as to say that, but would at least maybe like hint at it here and there. Uh, but but yes, we, we will get to that for sure. And and there is um, there is uh, I, I think a unified view 
of covenant theology, even, even though there's some differences. Anybody else have a question? Well, that wraps things up for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and for paying attention. That was almost a solid hour of teaching, and I know that I enjoyed uh, doing that class uh, several months back, and I'm even more excited now that I get to share it with all of you. So as you think about covenant theology, think about Bible interpretation, just know this is not just an academic exercise. I say this all the time, but it's so important to stress this. Knowing how to read the Bible really has everything to do with not only our minds, but our hearts, our relationship with God, what impact it makes in our lives. So know that I'm not trying to convince you about Coke as opposed to Pepsi or some kind of, you know, product analysis like that. This is this is all about understanding the Bible the way that God intends for it to be understood and celebrating what he has revealed to us. That's what covenant theology is all about. The main character is God, not us. It's a focus on what he has done, what he's revealed to us, and a celebration of that as we worship him just in awe of what he has done and who he is. So just keep that at the forefront of your minds as we think about Bible interpretation, because that's really what it boils down to. That's what the big picture is. So you can find the show notes for this, uh, which is kind of a modified outline of the way I taught this class. You can head to betterbiblereading.com forward slash episode 25 and feel free to check out the rest of the content I have on there. I look forward to hearing from all of you in uh, upcoming emails, social media, wherever you can find me. I would love to have conversation with you and tune in next time for another episode of the Better Bible Reading Podcast. Take care.